Well, good morning. How's everyone? Good. You guys awake? Good, because we got a lot in here. This is fun. Uh, my name is Eric. If you haven't met me, I'd love to get to know you or offer you a gift or answer any questions you might have out in the welcome area. Uh, we have a, a booth there where we can connect with you and help, get, help you get to know us. Uh, also online, uh, we'd love for you to fill out that information and help us connect with you. Uh, if you haven't been here in the last couple of weeks, we're in the book of 1 Samuel. And so uh, important to remember, 1 Samuel, Old Testament books, uh, there is a, there's a story taking place. It's a true story, real people, and it's important to be able to connect the dots so that when we land in certain places, you see the fullness uh, of what God is doing. And so important to remember the characters, remember the story, and so that when we pick it up, we, we know exactly what God is doing. So where we kind of left off was Israel had uh, tried to treat God kind of like a trinket. Uh, he, God is dwelling in the ark, and Israel thinks to themselves, well, we want victory over the Philistines. We'll go take this ark, and we'll put it in this camp, and we'll win. Well, what happens? They lose 30,000 soldiers in that battle. And so what we see now is the time between that loss and Israel repenting um, for what they had done. And so you're going to see this common theme of Israel saying, we, we, we want God kind of, but what we really want is to be like all the other nations. We want to worship their gods. We want to be structured like them. We want to look like them, talk like them, think like them. And there's this cycle where they turn away from the Lord to seek them, and then God brings oppression, and then through that oppression brings repentance or, or turning or remorse, uh, and then God uh, stays with them. So you want to see this, this cycle. It's going on and on and on and on. And so what, what's easy for us to do is kind of look at Israel and be like, man, you guys are dumb, right? Like, how have you not learned? How have you guys not seen? I mean, you, you have literally the Philistines. They see the ark of the Lord coming and they're like, wait, that's the God who 400 years prior messed with Pharaoh and got them out of Egypt. He's a big deal. Right? Even they understand, wow, don't mess with this God. And so you see this coming. It's like, why is this so hard for Israel? And what we want to realize is that we're just like them. Our hearts turn away from the Lord quickly. And if we could just remember this idea, instead of forgetting quick and changing slow, we never want to forget, and we want to change fast. Because what we're about to see here is 20 years of Israel just trying to work it out in a way apart from the Lord. And a question to ask is, how bad does bad have to get until we say, okay, God, okay, I'll change. What does it take for us to change? It's a question you'll see from this text, and it's my prayer that we would say, you know what, we want to remember the Lord always. And be quick to change because we trust him as our king. That when we look through this, we can say, man, Israel needed to trust the Lord. And that's what we want to do as well. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to hop right into our text. Uh, dear Jesus, we thank you so much uh, for loving us and giving us uh, the Bible that we could learn from it. That we could see uh, how people have loved you, how people have failed, uh, how you've restored them, redeemed them, walked with them. Uh, it's our prayer that you uh, would just teach us now, that they would be your words and not mine, that we would have a true heart to love you, um, that sin would wreck us in a way 
uh, that causes change because we care so much about you. And so it's my prayer that you would draw us close, teach us, uh, that your words would change us and they would be yours and not mine. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we're gonna look now in this transition of, you know, what do you do when you've committed idolatry? Because essentially that's anytime you love something more than you love God, uh, where you find solace, you find comfort, you find purpose, you find meaning, you go to that thing and you want it to soothe you, keep you, sustain you, you're going to see really four things in the text, four keys in the text to be a part of that. Uh, the first is lamenting. And this is so important. It's a, it's a, and you read the book of Lamentations, you're like, this is the worst book ever, because it's like depressing, right? It's this weeping and sorrow. Um, but we don't want to rush over that word because it's important. And I want you to see verse two. It says, the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And so when we, we think of sin, it's not an accidental uh, conversation with God. There needs to be a lamenting of what was done. And so a question you can kind of ask yourself is, is have I ever been wrecked over my sin? Wrecked in a way where you're, you're literally mourning the fact that that sin occurred. Because the Bible commands us to treat it that way. Because when we're mourning over the sin, it shows that we care about the person the sin was against. We're lamenting that we sinned against God. And more specifically, against our king, that he told us to do something. And so there's just some other passages I want you to see. I'm not making this up. Matthew chapter 5, verse 4 says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Uh, you know, next verse gets into, Blessed are the poor in spirit. It's not poor people, it's poor in spirit. It's, God, I've sinned, and I'm mourning that. The Bible calls us blessed, because that means we care about our relationship with Christ. We care that we've offended him, we've sinned against him, and we deeply want to change that. We don't ever want to do that again. And so the Bible kind of sits right in front of us and says, how do you feel about sin? Often when we pray or we confess sin, it's, it's indifferent, it's haphazard, it's kind of a laissez-faire, oh yeah, yeah, I sin. And, and I want you to think through the things that are happening in the text. By our account, it doesn't really seem like a big deal, does it? I mean, they're not handling the ark right, they're, they're not giving the right sacrifice, they're doing these things, and yet people are falling dead, people are being slaughtered, they just lost 30,000 men in an army. And it's because God said, this is how you approach me. And there's a consequence when you don't. And it takes 20 years for them to come to a place where they finally go, okay, God, okay, God, we're sorry. We lament the fact that we did this. James 4, 8 through 9 gives a little bit more specificity. It says, draw near to God. I want you to see the relational aspect of this. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Nine, be wretched, wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. See, this kind of gives us that specific, do we really mourn our sin? Do we really weep over sin? Or is it just like, yeah, I did it. Wasn't really that bad. Could have been worse. And, that, and that's what's kind of with Israel. They're like, what's the big deal? We want to worship the other gods. And God's like, the big deal is they're false. I just put Dagon on his face. 
That's a funny part of the text. If you didn't read that, go back and read it. The ark comes in next to Dagon on the altar, and Dagon just falls. Boom! God's like, I'm real, he's not. Love me, worship me. And they're like, yeah, but we want to try this. No, 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 him and him alone. And it takes them 20 years of pursuing. you got to think, Dagon and Baal, these false gods, it's the fertility god, it's the agricultural god, it's the, you know, uh, weather god. And God's over here going like, hey, look at Samuel, his wife or his mom couldn't have a baby. There's your fertility. He's speaking in a thunderous voice. There's your storm. He's like, I am your king. You need me. And it takes them 20 years to come to a place where they mourn it. So here begs the question, if we're not mourning sin, is it because we don't have a relationship to mourn at all? You see, this is all predicated on that you actually love God. You actually have a relationship where you can mourn. Uh, lamenting literally has built in its definition that you would weep uh, here to feel sadness, to express it through vocalizations, tears, ritual expressions of sadness and grief. The closest we can get to this, uh, I think it is really a funeral. Have you ever been to a funeral where you didn't know someone? And maybe you feel bad about the action, like the way the death occurred, but there's no mourning because you didn't lose anything. You didn't know them. I was thinking through this uh, in my own life, and you know, my grandpa, he was, he was a good guy. He was a nice guy. And he died when I was about nine years old of a heart attack. And I remember kind of being sad, but I, I didn't cry. And I remember I felt really guilty about that. Um, and, and then the more I unpacked it, it was because we didn't really have a relationship. He wasn't a bad grandpa, but we didn't really spend time together. We didn't do anything together. And then I contrast that with my grandma. She had Alzheimer's disease, and so she couldn't really carry on a conversation with me. But I bawled when she died because she was my buddy. She would dance with me. And I grew up kind of Baptist, so I know that's bad, but it was good dancing, right? It was like the waltz, the jitterbug, you know, nothing scandalous. She would play cards with me. She would um, give me ice cream for dinner and then, cut, I mean, she had Alzheimer's. She didn't know what she was doing, but still, it was awesome. She was my buddy. We, we hung out. Because my mom and my grandpa, they'd get into like these weird shows like Matlock. And, you know, I was like eight, nine. I didn't know what that was. Lawyers, judges, right? Murder, she wrote. Sorry, tangent. But like, she wouldn't, she'd play with me. And I bawled because I loved her. Because I had a relationship with her. When I think of my own, my own dad, one of the most sobering moments of my life was, uh, you know, I was with him till I was five. And then we left and then came back when I was about 19, 20 years old. I started up and it was just a shallow relationship. And I, I remember the ex-wives in the background and they were all bawling. And then I looked at my siblings and their dry eyes. And I was like, why is that? Well, because they knew a man that we didn't. They had a relationship that we didn't. You can't mourn what you don't have. And so if we don't mourn sin, you don't weep over our sin. It begs the question, do we have a relationship at all? It's a fair question, isn't it? And so when we come to the text and we see this lament, they're mourning, they're weeping. It's because there really is a relationship there. This king is trying to love these people. 
provide for these people. And, and, they, and, they, and they enter into it a little bit. And then they walk away. And they walk away. And they walk away. And so the question for us is, how bad does it have to be until we finally say, okay, God, mercy, mercy. Ah, I don't want to do this anymore. I just, I love you too much. I can't do this. See, I think it's because we mistake mourning over the action versus mourning over the person we've offended. Um, unfortunately, I've learned this with uh, affairs over the years. That I'll sit across from a table with a man and we'll be talking and he's mourning. And sure enough, I'll just be listening and listening and, and I realize he's mourning that he got caught. He's mourning that the relationship he had is no more. He's not mourning that he's wrecked his life, ruined his children. He's mourning over this relationship exists no more. And so the mourning is that you've offended the person that you love deeply. You're lamenting that you could do something so egregious to that person that you care about, that you love. And that mourning is so deep and it is so rich that you say, I never want to do that again because it hurts me to know that I've pained you, offended you. But obviously, God doesn't get hurt feelings. But his holiness is offended. He is violated. You see this concept in 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 11. It says, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved. See, that's that motive mourning. But because you were grieved into repenting. It's saying you were hurt so bad, you changed, you turned. You, you took your direction and went an opposite way. It's not just feeling bad. It's not just being sad. It's, I can't do this anymore. I have to go an opposite direction. For you felt a godly grief. So this is godly grief, right? So that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces repentance, turning, changing. Take, going away from the thing you're worshiping. We're talking about idolatry here. Going away from the thing that's soothing you, fixing you, loving you making you feel better, and turning towards God and saying, you're the king, you're the sustainer, you're the one in charge, right? Without regret. Without regret. Saying, I don't ever want to, I'm not looking back. Too many times, marriage counseling, and the, the person will go from the affair, and they'll turn from the affair, and just go right into something else. Instead of cheating on their spouse with a person, they're cheating on their spouse with their job, with a hobby, with a friendship, whatever it is. They just traded one affection for another. Instead of cheating with a person, they're cheating with an object. There was no turning saying, I never want you to feel isolated, lonely, disappointed. And in God's case, I never want there to be a hint of, I love something more than you. I never want that to be true about me, without regret. Right? Whereas worldly grief produces death. Why? Because there's no change. There's no change. And so when we look at Israel and we look at ourselves, the first thing we have to say is, does sin wreck me in a way that I lament, that I mourn? And I'm sure there's, there's, there's sins where it's like, wow, that was really bad and it hurts. But it's, it's even the small things from our language to our attitudes, to our disposition, to the thoughts in our head, to our monitors, to our TV screens, to our phones. 
Look, look through this story. God says, if you don't do it, it's a sin. You don't think it's a big deal to carry the ark a certain way. You don't think it's a big deal to, to offer the meat properly. But God's saying, I'm holy. And this is how you do it. I'm the king. And you need to care that you've offended me. And so finally, after 20 years, Israel goes, we've offended you. We've offended you. They lament. So out of lamenting, you're going to see now this transition of turning, right? Verse 3. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts. I love that if. It's conditional. It's saying, hey, we can, we can restore, we can move forward if you're coming with all your heart. Not you're lamenting that you got caught. Not that you're lamenting that you lost that soothing thing in your life. You're actually coming with all of your heart saying, I want to fall underneath your kingship. I want to fall underneath your leadership, your love, your provision, your providence as a provider, a sustainer. I want you to reign over all of me. I'm not going to go to Dagon if I'm trying to have a baby. I'm not going to go to Baal if I need rain for my crops. I'm going to come to you. I'm going to trust you, all of it. I'm going to trust you with my marriage. I'm going to trust you with my kids. And you've you got to see the irony in this text. You have the fertility God, and you have the agricultural God, and you have like the weather God. And literally, Samuel's the one who was born of a woman who was barren in her late age, and then he thunders with his voice, and then Dagon falls face ground on the ground. You see the irony? God's like, hey, I work, I'm better, trust me. And this is, this is Samuel's call to them turn your heart, trust him with everything. This is kind of the heart you see of Eli in chapter 3, where we were a few weeks ago, where he gets a hard word from Samuel, from the Lord, that God's going to judge Eli and his household. And what's Eli's response? Whatever the Lord deems good, whatever seems good to him, do it. Do you realize in that statement, he's saying, God's going to kill my kids. He's going to kill me. We're going to be judged. Whatever seems good to the king. He makes the rules. I trust him. That's a bold statement, isn't it? But that's what it means to turn with all of your heart. That's what it means to trust with all of your heart. That's what it means to direct, verse 3, direct your heart to the Lord. To say, I, I have pain. I have infertility pain. I'm not going to go worship this. I'm not going to go try to do this. I'm not going to try to you know, my, my marriage is failing. I'm going to go seek another person. I'm going to seek, I'm going to go to the Lord first. I'm going to seek him. I'm going to cry out to him and direct my heart to him. And guess what? Sometimes he says no. Sometimes he says people are going to die. Sometimes he says you're going to be punished. And that's what Eli modeled back there in chapter 3. Whatever seems good to the Lord. And so when Samuel's calling them to this Direction to this turn is saying, we're going to trust the Lord in all things. We're going to look up for our help. We're not going to look out to the world. We're not going to look to the Canaanites, the Philistines, the pagans. We're going to look up to the Lord, direct our hearts towards him. Psalm 121 says this, says, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? 
My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. See, you see, you pick this up in verse 8, right? So you have the Philistines coming to wage war on them. Verse 8, Samuel says, do not stop crying out to the Lord. Verse 9, Samuel cried out to the Lord. Then verse 14, he makes an Ebenezer. He makes a memorial. The Lord helped. They looked up for their help. They cried out to him for their help. With no guarantee that God will save them. He's the king. We cry out to him. And we're not going to go and try to be a part of the world to fix our feelings, our emotions, our insecurities. To the littlest detail, we direct our heart to the Lord. Then once we've done that, we can now, point three, serve him only. And he will deliver you. See, once we've mourned our sins, we have a relationship. God, I've sinned against you. I love you. There has been a loss of intimacy between you and I that I cannot take anymore. You ever got the silent treatment from your spouse? You love it for like an hour or two, maybe even a day for the extreme introvert. But two days, right? You're like, come on. Like, the loss of intimacy is killing you, isn't it? And if you love not talking to your spouse more than that, come talk to me. You have problems, right? Like, you care about the intimacy of fellowship. So you've mourned that loss. You've directed your heart. You've turned, right? You're saying, God, I, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to go to you. Now it's, okay, now I'm, now I'm here. I'm yours. Whatever you want, right? Romans 12, living sacrifice. God, whatever you want me to do, I will do it. You own me. You're the king. You see, this is the problem with Israel. They don't want to be owned by God. They, they, they want to be like the other nations. And think about it, why? Well, because God says, you have to give me your best sacrifice. You have to love your enemy. Well, what do the other nations do? Well, they worship through prostitution, giving your leftovers. It's fun to worship their gods. And say, no, 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 you're not going to go to them. You're going to go to God. He's your king. And you're going to say, whatever you want, king. If that means I need to dress a certain way, because the Bible says I'm to be modest, then that's what I'm going to do. If I need to talk a certain way, because that's how you call me to talk, that's what I'm going to do. If I need to forgive, I'll forgive. If I need to sing, I'll sing. You want me to read my Bible? I'll read my Bible. You want me to pray? I'll pray. You want me to go to the nations and share the gospel? I'll go. You're the king, whatever you want. You want my checkbook? Hannah, you want my child? Saying whatever you want, I'm here to serve you. I'm not serving the other idols anymore. I'm not going to orient my life around their traditions and rituals so that I can try to soothe my insecurities, my purpose, my feelings, my hurt, my pain. Say, no, 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 I'm going to turn to the Lord. I'm going to do, I'm going to serve whatever he asks me. Now, here's the problem. When we say, God, I want to serve you, what's scary is we could look really stupid. You ever look through the Old Testament and what God asked them to do, and it's like, wow, that's really silly. Just think of Joshua conquering Jericho. You have this huge fortified city, and you're like, okay, we're going to bring the swords. Like, God's like, no. We're going to get cannons. They didn't exist back then. But you're like, no. Right? Top Gun's popular. Fighter jets, right? No. No. 
you're going to walk around seven times and bang pots and pans and blow trumpets. What? Can you imagine being an Israelite, just walking around the city like, ha, 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 look at us, we're really scary. Right? And God's like, yeah, watch this. Boom, walls fall, God wins. See, God's in the business, and you'll see this through the book of Samuel. He does it in an unorthodox way, so it's very clear, he did the work, not us. Like a 12-year-old killing a giant with a slingshot. It wasn't the 12-year-old, it was God. Another sermon, it's coming, okay? So you look through that. Like, I might look silly. That's right. God might tell you to walk around the wall, bang the pot and pan, and just trust what happens. Because he's the king. He's saying, I trust him. So yeah, we might look silly saying, marriage is between a man and a woman, and a biological man and woman. And God defines gender. And I, and I do go to church. And I do want my kids to be taught what the Bible says. And I don't use certain colorful language. And I won't do certain activities. Because I am under the leadership of the king, God himself. See, these things are what make us distinct from the other nations. And so the other nations might laugh at us. They might think we're weak. And this is why Israel's like, hey, we, we kind of got to look like them or we're going to be a joke of all the countries. And God's like, don't you guys get it? I put their God on his face in the dirt. I gave them, I gave them tumors. I killed them by myself. Don't worry about them. Serve me. So this is why it's a part of the plea. Serve him only. Quit trying to have a foot in the world's kingdom and in Christ's kingdom. He says, no, no, no. Both feet firmly planted, all of your heart turning towards trusting, serving him. And this is going to be the challenge of Israel. God rescues them, just like he does here. They celebrate, and then they go right back to where they were. So the challenge for us is, can we never forget, and can we change quickly? Because we're always going to be tempted to go to a Dagon or a Baal and say, God, I just need my kids to be like this. I just need my marriage to be like that. I'll do whatever it takes. It's working for the world. Instead of just going, you know what, God, here's my sin. Here's this relationship. It's terrible. What do you want me to do? I want you to forgive. I want you to let it go. I want you to go over here. I want you to trust me. Whatever that might be. I say it's, it's better to be in pain and trust you than to have the false comfort of the world and really go nowhere. So as you keep working through this text, you're like, okay, we're seeing this. Like we're mourning our sin. We're directing our heart and, and attention and affection to the Lord. And now we're going to do what he says. And then the last part is to remember. You have to remember what the Lord has done. This is why it's so good to come to church on Sundays, right? We need the reminders, don't we? Okay, just me. I'm excited to get reminded, okay? Because it's like I forget so easy. And what's interesting is, obviously somebody didn't forget what God did. Well, how do you know that? Look back in chapter 4 when the Philistines are like, that's the God of the Exodus. That, that he brought them out of Egypt and conquered Pharaoh. That was 400 years later. Someone remembered, didn't they? They were like, there's a really big God and you shouldn't mess with him. I think that's the one. See, they did a good job of remembering in certain places, but then they would forget. 
Look at what's trying to happen in the text, right? So the Philistines come upon him, 8 and 9. Samuel cries out, offers a lamb. The Lord delivers. And then verse 12. Then Samuel took a stone. He set it up between Mizpah and Shin, and he called it Ebenezer, for he said, till now the Lord has helped us. He sets up a big rock, and he says, every time you pass this rock, we will remember the Lord helped us. It stands as a reminder. So when we see the enemy coming, when we see the insecurity building, when you're not feeling like your prayers are answered, you're not having uh, a child, you're, you're losing your job, your health is dwindling, your marriage is failing. There's something physically there that reminds you, remember when the Lord delivered us? Remember how the Lord has helped us? And it's to be an encouragement. This is why they were so methodical in remembering what the Lord did, remembering what the Lord did. Look at Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 9. It says, and these words I have commanded you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall walk of them and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. When is this written? coming right out of Exodus, delivers them from Egypt, says, hey, teach every single day. Teach them, teach them, teach them. Why? So they won't forget. Won't forget what? To serve the Lord. Why? Because their hearts are directed at him. Why? Because they love him. He's their king. So from the very beginning, they said, teach every time you're with them. Teach, teach, teach. And obviously it worked because we're still reading it, didn't it? They remembered what the Lord had done. And so that's a good question for us is where do we go when we feel like just God's not there? God's not working. Things aren't going our way. Well, obviously the Bible serves as a great Ebenezer. It shares. But where are things in your life when you can remember, oh yeah, God did do that. God totally answered that prayer. He was there with me. He walked with me. Here's one thing that's absolutely imperative is we have to share what God has done with the kids. They need to know that God has shown up in big moments, has loved big, forgiven big. We have to share those stories so that when they're in dark places, they know, no, God can forgive that. God can walk with you through that. Absolutely, Christians have survived that. They can't just see parents who never sin and don't know anything that's going on and don't see how God has impacted and has, has changed and redirected their life. Isn't that important? It's, huge. it's part of how we keep it going. They have to know how the Lord has worked. And sometimes it's okay for it to be physical. You know, we, we have one here at church. This is a, a stone, an Ebenezer we have. And it's for uh, Nathan and Shannon. There are missionaries that we sent over into Asia, into an unreached people group to plant a church. It sits in our lobby uh, on a table. And every time I pass it, I know, oh man, I need to pray for them. 
Because there's a lot of things to remember, isn't there? And so this is, the Bible is just being very real with us. Hey, here's a physical thing. There's nothing magical about the rock. It's not powerful. It's just symbolic. Hey, there's people who need Jesus on the other side of the globe. And God raised them up, sent them, planted them. And Lord willing, there will be a church with a Bible that exists there one day. Pray for them. Remember them. It's good to have those things in your house. That when you walk by, it reminds you of what God did. Now this next one, hang with me guys. I know it's, it's rough when you hear the word journal, okay? But journal, hear me out. You do not need to write, tears when I cried and I felt like the world was ending, okay? You can be very engineer, spreadsheet, accountant-like. Bullet point, fact. God answered. God did. I prayed. That's not too emotional, right guys? But it's just a record of keeping. God did something. So that when you're in that maybe Hannah moment and you're out crying saying, why am I not having a child? And people are laughing at you and it feels like God doesn't love you. You can go to something. He did love me. He did provide for me. He is there. And it can give you hope. So you break the cycle. You don't turn away from the Lord. You don't rebel. You turn toward him. You direct your heart toward him and say, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you. I forgot how you were faithful in the past. I forgot how you loved me. I'm going to trust you. So just thinking through that, if it's a journal, if it's a blog, if it's social media, whatever it is, there's a place you can go. And then you share that with your children. And, and the deeper part of this is that we would share that with each other. It's so important that other Christians see, well, God's working. Because if we're being honest, there's just times when you're sitting there going, man, the Philistines are getting close. And it looks like the Philistines are going are gonna to kill us. And it feels like the walls are going to crush in. It's good for someone to say, hey, remember the rock. Remember he delivered us out of the hands. We can trust him. We can go to him. He helped us. Do you remember that? It's like, thank you. Thank you. And so there needs to be in the process of remembering, sharing. Sharing the good work that God has done. That's what gives us strength to trust him in the next chapter of life, in the deeper parts of our life, to say, I trust the king. So he builds the Ebenezer, right? 14, the cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel. 15, Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. Okay? And you, you keep reading, it says that the Philistines... Uh, the hand of God was upon them. God's trying to show them, look, you don't need a king. You have me. Trust me. I took care of Dagon. I took care of the Philistines. I took care of you. Just trust me. And then we're going to get right into chapter 8. We're like, cool, can we have a king? And you're like, what happened? They forgot to remember. Right? They forgot to remember. And so it's our heart and our goal to say, you know what? I need to never ever forget what he has done and always change as fast as I can. Because the question is, how bad does bad have to be until we say, okay, God, I need to go your way now. My way doesn't work. 
I need to trust you. It might be unorthodox, it might hurt, it might be hard, but I trust you. Last passage, Psalm 119. It says, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. Now catch this. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Do we say that enough? Man, God, that pain was good. I never want to experience it again. I never want to experience it again. And so it's saying in the, in the pain, saying, God, help me learn from this. Help me trust you. Help me trust you're the king, you're in charge. If you ever got hurt so bad, you're like, I don't ever need to do that again. That ever happened to you? That's what the pain's supposed to be. It's supposed to be that gift that says, I don't want to do that with God again. It's just better to trust him. My prayer, which I'm still waiting for him to answer, is I could just learn from other people's mistakes and then I wouldn't need to do them and feel them, right? But for some reason, that pain, it's just, oh, such a wonderful teacher. But that's what he's getting at. In, in Israel's lament, it's like, oh God, this hurts. We've been absent from you. And he's like, return, return. Turn with all of you and trust me. And you will learn. And you will be well. That's what we want to do with God, amen? So here's some questions. What are some sins I minimize and feel little to no remorse over? See, this is the problem in the text. They're like, oh, who cares? Eli's sons, who cares if we don't give God that part of the animal? No, God said don't do it, so you don't do it. And when we minimize the sin, it minimizes the relationship. He's the king, he decides. He doesn't like it, we shouldn't like it. When we start massaging this out, it's like, well, yeah, God, it's the relationship on our terms, not his, but he's the king. So how can we stop that? Two, how has God helped you in the past and how can you keep those memories in the front of your mind instead of buried? It's really important. Just remember, oh, that's right. God did that. Oh, that's right. God did that. Somewhere you can go. Your Bible is a wonderful thing. Tons and tons of ways God delivered, God helped, God provided, God comforted. But there should be something where you can look and be like, I, for, I totally forgot about that. And you can praise him in that moment. Like, I don't even think I could, I could speak, let alone praise, because, oh, that's right, I forgot. Three, what competes for your heart's affection towards God? You know, you know for Israel, their, their affection, what, what competed was being like everybody else. They just wanted to blend in. They have a king, we get a king. They have a God made out of a statue, we want a God. We just want to be like them. And God says, no, I call you to be completely different, completely other, set apart. What gets in the way of you going that direction? What do you hold on to? You know, but God, look at their family. Look at their, I just, I just want, it's like, no, no, no. You need to die to that whole heart towards him. What is that? Four, how can you break the cycle of, and this is what we saw in the text, apostasy, rebellion might be an easier word to understand, oppression, repentance, and deliverance. Can we just learn from the fact that we love Christ and we don't want to sin against him? Can that be our guiding principle? Can we learn from the Bible? Can we learn from other people? Instead of repeating the cycle of Israel, 
They go, okay, God, you're cool, but now we can do it our way. It's like, no, 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 how can I stop saying that? Five, have you ignored God as king in your life? Is there an area of your life where you know what, God? You don't get to decide how I dress. You don't get to decide how I spend my money. You don't get to decide how I parent. You don't get to decide how I spend my free time. You don't get to decide if I forgive, don't forgive, hate people. You don't get to decide my social media. I decide that. But when I need something, I'll come to you. I'll let you know. Because this is Israel's problem. They want him to be in charge of a part, a quarter, a half. And he's like, no, whole thing. That's why he says, if you're returning, you return with everything. Because everything is his. You are wholly owned because you are fully paid for and bought by the son in the crucifixion. So what area do you need to give to the king? And the last one, how can you do a better job of serving God as king in all aspects of your life? That's the Romans 12, like living sacrifice. Whatever you want. You want me to go? I'll go. You want me to pre, you know, share the gospel? I'll share. Forgive? I'll forgive. Change my language? I'll change it. Whatever you want, God, you're in charge. How can we do a better job of that? Because he's the king and we need to trust him. Amen? Let's pray. God, we love you and we thank you and we praise you um, that your word operates uh, as a remembrance, a constant reminder of how people um, have failed and sinned and fallen short and you loved them and redeemed them and changed them. It's our prayer that you uh, would speak to us now, that you would direct our hearts as we want to take a time to remember what you've done and we want to keep you in the front of our minds, not the back of our minds. And let that memory shape our affections, shape our reactions to be more like Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This this Sunday, we're waiting. You guys hear me? There we go. We uh, are doing communion. And so uh, I think with this sermon, it's it's hard to find a better sermon. Because literally what we're doing with is communion is a chance to lament to mourn over the sin uh, and then realize that Jesus takes the wrath of God in our place, sheds his blood so that our sin could be paid for. So so we look at the sin that, that we've sinned against Christ and we're to mourn that, that he had to do that. That is our sin that put him there. But the beauty is that we get to rejoice that we're forgiven, we're loved, we're redeemed. He helped us. Our help came from above. He sent the Son to do what we couldn't. And so it's important that we, we, we don't just practice that daily, but that we also practice that in communion, um, that we don't uh, approach it haphazardly or with indifference, like, yeah, forgive me, this, this, that, this, this, that, this, this, that. Um, that there'd actually be a mourning taking place saying, God, I did this against you. Forgive me. I know we're not going to instantly jump to this place of mourning if we're not used to that, but just maybe ask the Lord to direct your heart in that way. See, God, break my heart in a way that that causes me to want to change, to direct it towards you. Um, Because if we don't, we're, we're missing how we do communion. And the Bible tells us to do it in a very specific way. Um, 1 Corinthians 11, we're going to look at verse 27 here real quick. It says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner 
will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. So you don't just chuck back the juice and the cracker. That's gluten-free, by the way, because you're trying to go through the process, get through it. Oh, yeah, that was good. Awesome. No, no, no. That sin was real. It caused Christ to go to the cross. It was expensive. It was painful. It was God's wrath poured out on Christ when it should have been on us. You mourn that sin. You weep that sin. And then you rejoice that it's paid for and forgiven. It says when you don't do it in the right way, it says it brings judgment on us. Because we're treating sin as if it's no big deal. As if we don't have a relationship with God who sent Christ for us. So, uh, recommendation on this. Take the bread first. Uh, if you try to take it when you've already taken the juice off, you'll tip the juice, right? And we don't want juice on us. So start with the bread, then go to the juice, okay? And you're going to do that at, at your own leisure, your own time, at your own pace. When you've worked through confession and repentance and, and you're ready. And then we're going to have a unique opportunity to do exactly what the text does. Remember, celebrate that the Lord has helped us, that Christ has provided for us. And we get to sing that and honor him and, and give him praise and thankfulness right out of remembering our sin. We get to remember who Christ is and what he did, and we get to sing about it in celebration. That's full circle. So it's a beautiful time we get to take this morning. So I'm gonna pray. Go ahead and take communion at your own, your own pace, and then John will lead us in a, in a great celebration of thanking Christ for what he did. Let's pray. God, we love you and we thank you for Jesus. Um, that he does uniquely what we could never do. Live the perfect life. Die the perfect death. Conquer sin. Conquer death. In the resurrection. And that he is our king and he has paid for us. May we celebrate him. May we thank him. May we praise him. And just have a sweet time of remembering all that you have done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.